If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24 and going through the end of the chapter, verse 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he, said to, he, looked, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. There ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. There ain't no river wide enough to keep Christ from getting to you. The chasm between heaven and earth wasn't enough. The distance between his holiness and your sin wasn't enough to keep him from saving you. The sorrows, pains, and temptations he bore on this earth were not enough to get in the way of his grace. These last two weeks, we talked about the hypocrisy that we so easily fall into as human beings. We talked about how to counteract that hypocritical spirit with a right understanding of our own sin. Where that sin comes from, from within us, not from outside of us. But today, like a spoonful of sugar after a swig of medicine, Mark reminds us of the extensive grace of Christ. His grace, his love, is greater than any obstacles that might be in its way. There are none who are outside of its reach. The grace of Christ brings both the unclean and the incapable into his kingdom. From our text this morning, we'll be able to see these two kinds of people who are saved by the grace of Christ. There are two kinds of people saved by the grace of Christ this morning. The first of all, Jesus saves the unclean, the unworthy. He seeks the unclean. Look at verses 24 through 26. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He arose and went. He did this on purpose. Nothing he did here was by accident. Mark arranged this story immediately after last week's as a perfect illustration of the two sides of the gospel. That though we are infinitely evil, his grace and love are infinitely good. That though we are so defiled that we have no standing before him, his love for us is so much that he will go and find us anyway. 
Though we are infinitely evil, we are loved by an infinitely good God. No matter the defilement we already have within us, the grace of Jesus can still reach us. Not only can it reach us, but here today we see that the heart of Jesus is to go out and to find these people. He arose and went. He was not bound by geography. Jesus ministered primarily in Israel during his three years of ministry on this earth. But this morning, in this text, he left Israel. He went into the region of Lebanon, the towns of Tyre and Sidon. This wasn't only outside of Israel, but it would have been the territory of an ancient pagan people, enemies of the Israelites, the Phoenicians. He's expanding the borders of his ministry, showing that the whole earth is his claim. Not some tiny little ancestral inheritance known as the region of Israel. He's able to push beyond those bounds. He's not bound by geography. He will not be bound by our earthly borders. He demands people worship him from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because he is the Lord of the whole earth. And the whole earth will be filled with his glory. He's not bound by gender. Women weren't revered in this society in any way, shape, or form. Any woman approaching Jesus would have been scandalous in some sense, in some way. But this story includes not just one woman, but two. The mother and the daughter. The the woman advocating for another woman would have been even more preposterous than any one woman coming up to Jesus. But Jesus has already healed daughters in his gospel. He's already healed other women in his gospel. But healing a tiny little girl with no standing before him at the behest of another woman who would have had no societal standing before him wouldn't have made sense to anyone in this text but Jesus. But the grace of Christ is not bound by gender. It's also not bound by ethnicity. Not only was he outside the borders of Israel territorially, geographically, he was outside of Israel ethnically. He was approached by not just a woman, but a Gentile woman. Not just a Gentile woman, but a Syrophoenician woman. Gentiles were despised by Jews. They were thought of not only as outside the bounds of the Jewish faith, but unworthy of possible entrance into it. They said, nope, we are God's people. We are the Jews. He's for us. He's not for you. That wasn't the plan from the beginning, but that's what they had fallen into. When a Jew thought of a Syrophoenician woman, not just a Gentile, but a Syrophoenician woman, they wouldn't think of just some ambiguously evil person, some faceless Gentile who is off out there somewhere. When they heard Syrophoenician woman, what immediately would pop into their head was Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the primary opponent of Elijah in 1 Kings. Elijah, the greatest of the prophets, Jezebel, perhaps the most evil woman to be depicted in the entire scripture. When they heard Syrophoenician woman, that's who they thought of. It wasn't just that she was a Gentile. It wasn't just that she was a woman. It was that she was a Syrophoenician woman. But Jesus, as the greater Elijah, isn't persecuted by his Syrophoenician woman. He redeems her. He redeems her daughter. It's a picture of the promises and conflicts of the Old Testament being fulfilled and expounded in the New. That Jesus, as the greater Elijah, is not persecuted by his Syrophoenician, but saves his Syrophoenician. He's not bound by ethnicity. If Jesus is willing to transcend borders, willing to transcend sexual lines, 
willing to transcend race for the sake of the gospel. That's significant for us today. If Jesus was unwilling to save someone of another region, if, we, if Jesus was willing to save someone of another region, we have to be willing, willing to reach across the globe. That's something I really appreciate about us as a church. Then when it comes time for missions offerings, man, people get excited. People are pumped. We get the chance to give money so that someone on the other side of the world might be saved. Particularly for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, it's not someone on the other side of the world. It's someone here, but someone who's lost. That the gospel might reach them. That wherever it needs to go, it can go. Jesus was willing to transcend earthly borders. And the easiest way for us to do that is to give, to support. Now, I think we should seriously consider if we're called to do more than that. Every single Christian has to justify not why they should go to the mission field, but why they should stay, why they shouldn't go. Not everyone does. Not everyone's called to. Not everyone has to. But when it comes to missions, you've got three options. Go, send, or be disobedient. And I think this church relishes the opportunity to send. And I'm appreciative of that. But we have to remember over and over that just as Jesus went and sent, so we are called to do. He was willing to save someone of another region. He was willing to save someone who he wasn't expected to save in a woman. Now, today in our culture, men and women lines aren't quite as clear as they were here. It wouldn't be scandalous for a woman to be in this room. I know that because there's roughly 70% of this room is women right now. It'd be pretty weird if that were a bad thing. I'm glad that they're here. I'm glad that you're here. You have a part to play in the kingdom. And we should remember that. Even as we hold to biblical norms in terms of roles. If Jesus was willing to save someone of another race, we have to be eager to reach someone of another ethnicity. The first step in this, the first step of finding someone who is not the same ethnicity as us and reaching them with the gospel is knowing someone of another ethnicity outside of ours. You have to befriend them. You have to listen to them. Once you know people of another race, of another ethnicity as friends, it's much harder to think of them as a faceless group because you think of your friend. You think of the person you know. Their face is what comes to mind. And if you think any of these dispositions don't or shouldn't apply to you, that we shouldn't care about expanding the borders. We shouldn't care about reaching the, the opposite sex from ourselves. We shouldn't care about reaching someone of a different ethnicity. Let me tell you that you are as wrong as you could possibly be. Because if Christ had not expanded geographical borders or ethnic borders or brought to faith people of a different earthly sex than he had, you would not be a Christian. The only reason that you're in this room hearing the gospel as a child of God is because Jesus was willing to go out and get people who were not already his. You are one of those. We have to be willing to take the heart of Christ to those outside of our normal bounds that we already have set up. We've got to be willing to do that because that's what he did. He was saving that which is unclean. In fact, he only saves those who are unclean. 
Look at verses 27 through 30. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon God. She approached him in humility. She fell at his feet. She begged him. And that's the only right posture to approach Christ. In light of our own sinfulness, when we come to him, we have to let whatever foolish pride we might still have fall away. We have to let it leave us in the face of his glory and his grace. She approached him in humility because she recognized that she was unclean. She was unworthy of being saved by one such as Jesus. And when he responded to her in verse 27, he was responding with reality. That statement, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say, does it? He effectively called this woman a dog to her face. But when we read it, we have to understand that what he's doing isn't just insulting this woman. We don't have to think of this as an insult to her, but rather he's reflecting the reality of the day back to her through an analogy. He wasn't calling her a dog, but he's saying, look, according to everyone else, that's what you would be. You're a dog at the table waiting for scraps. So why should I save you? Am I supposed to be any different from them? And he is. He's setting her up. He's giving her the opportunity to reveal her faith as she speaks to him. Their dogs, in this analogy, were not like our dogs. Dogs back then were more wild. They were less domesticated. They were thought of as scavengers. Don't think dog so much as you think of like dingo, hyena. They weren't lap dogs back then for the most part. They weren't things you would put in your purse and go into a restaurant with. They were things that maybe if you were rich enough, you'd have one that was nice enough that it wouldn't hurt you. Dogs were scavengers. They were a major insult to call someone a dog at this time. But Jesus isn't calling her a dog. He's not saying what he actually thinks of her. He's reminding her of the order of the society and religion of the time. Wealthier people may have had dogs as pets, so she would have known how the meals worked with dogs present. Roughly the same way it works today. The master has the food, he gives it to the children, whatever's left gets thrown to the dogs. They get the scraps at the table. They're eagerly waiting for whatever they can get after the children have eaten. The analogy follows that the master who owns the food would be God. The children eating the first fruits would be the Israelites, the Jews, the ancestral people of God. Then the dogs in this story would be anyone else that's desiring the bread of life that's given at the master's table. But Jesus isn't saying, look, wait your turn. Maybe I'll get to you. Maybe if there's enough left over, I'll possibly be able to give you something after the Jews have had their fill. He's not saying if there's more grace left after the Jews get some, then she might be able to partake in the kingdom. He's testing to see if she understands exactly where she stands in the greater picture of history and salvation. That at this time, she wasn't supposed to be able to eat at his table. She wasn't supposed to be able to receive anything from him. 
He's expanding the borders of his people. He's making a new and true and better Israel by bringing her in. And he's asking, do you know that you're unworthy of this? And her answer shows that she not only knows where she falls in line, but she actually trusts that there's plenty of grace at the table for her to eat. That when she comes to the master's table, those scraps are more than enough for her. It doesn't matter the order of salvation at the master's table because there's enough food to go around. The leftover crumbs of an infinite grace are more than enough to satisfy the longings of a starving dog who is unworthy of salvation. And her faithful understanding of both her own unworthiness as well as the boundless grace of God, that's what heals her daughter. It's when she acknowledges that she doesn't deserve anything that she receives everything. Jesus doesn't save those who are unworthy as an extra extension of his grace. That he starts with those who are worthy and then gets to the unworthy. He starts with the unworthy because all are unworthy. He saves no one who is worthy because there are none who are worthy. And yet some are saved. He only saves those who are unworthy because those are the only people needing to be saved. At Jesus' table, she had no need to worry about being left hungry, about being outside of the fold, the last in line to get fed. At his table, there's more than enough to satisfy the hungry because Jesus saves those who are unclean. He saves those who are outside the borders of where he's already gone. He saves those who should not be able to speak to him in this culture. He saves those who are not ethnically among the people that he's supposed to be ministering to. Like you. Like me. He saves the unclean. But he also saves the incapable. That's the second kind of people that we see in our text today. Of who receives the grace of Jesus. He saves the incapable. Verses 31 and 32. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. He accepted the one who was brought to him. The man wasn't brought of his own accord. He was brought to Jesus. This man was both deaf and mute. So he hadn't heard of Jesus and what he had done. And he didn't tell anybody to take him to him. He couldn't have told his friends to take him to Jesus. But yet he was brought to Christ all the same. The man didn't beg before Jesus. He was begged for. There are echoes here of the paralytic. Remember in Mark chapter 2. Who was lowered through the roof and brought to Jesus. It's a very similar situation here. With the, the man who is both deaf and mute. This man's friends begged on his behalf. There's a lot that happened before we get to this point in the story. So there were people who knew someone was in need. They befriended that person that was in need. They heard of someone who could address that need. They brought their friend to the only one who could help him, whether he wanted them to or not. And then they petitioned the one with the power in this scenario to help their friend. That's friendship. That's compassion. To know them, to know their need, To find a way to meet their need. To take them to the one who meets all needs. And to petition him on their behalf. That's friendship. That's compassion. That's how Christians interact with people who need Jesus. 
Where are you on that sequence of events with non-Christians? Do you know any? Are you friends with anyone who isn't a Christian, who doesn't attend this church right now? Not just acquaintances, but friends? Do you know the one who can meet their needs in such a way that you know they need him? You know exactly where they need him, how they need him, how to give him to them. Are you actively bringing them to him through prayer, sacrificial friendship, pleading with them to be reconciled to God, that they might come to faith in Jesus Christ? Without all these elements, without someone else doing this on his behalf, this deaf, mute man would never have been healed. Without those steps on your part, the non-believers around you may never be reconciled. They might never be brought to Jesus. They might never have their ears opened and their tongues loosed. But this man, when he was brought to Jesus, was accepted by Jesus. Christ didn't turn him away. He didn't refuse this man who had no value in society because of his disabilities. Because he, like the woman, was a Gentile. He wouldn't have had any value to Jews. He was deaf and mute. What was he going to do? From a societal standpoint, he was only a leech on other people's resources. And yet Jesus accepted him all the same. He accepted him after the sacrifice and the petition of his friends. He accepted the man who was incapable and who was brought to him. And when that incapable man got to Jesus, Jesus met him where he was. Verses 33 and 34. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Jesus dealt privately with the man. He didn't do all of this that we see in the text in the full view of everyone. Because they weren't the point. They weren't the ones who needed healing. It was about the man who needed Jesus. Good works do not have to be public to be worth it. In our day and age, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? That someone might do a good thing and not immediately tell Facebook. But good things don't have to be public to be worth it. Very often, it's the small, private, seemingly meaningless steps of faith that eventually reap the greatest rewards for the kingdom. Something small and not public that can be worth it could be as simple and as small as coming to church even on the days you don't feel like it. Even on the days when you feel bruised and burnt by the world. When things are going so wrongly that you can't hardly get out of bed. On that day, coming to church might be something that isn't public, that no one else knows the struggle that it took for you to get here. But it might have a huge impact for you and your life in the kingdom. It could be as small as sacrificially giving just a little bit more than you typically have. Giving toward a specific missions offering where you haven't before. Knowing that the small amount that you've given can have an outsized impact on the kingdom of God. You may not see the steps toward faith that non-believers make either. They might be slowly and painfully and in such a way that it's imperceptible to the naked eye, turning toward God. And you might not have any idea. Very rarely does someone have a 180-degree change in an instant. More likely, 
there are many small steps of faith that people take before pledging their lives in service to God. They don't show up on a Sunday morning and all of a sudden, like a bolt of lightning, they're different. A lot of times, they show up on a Sunday morning and then they show up six months later. And then they show up three months later. And then they show up one month later. And then they start asking questions. And then they start reading. And then they might even start praying a little bit. And then they're really consistent. And they're really curious. And they're asking a lot of questions. And then eventually something finally clicks. And that's when they come to faith. But we didn't see all the tiny little steps they took to get there. We didn't see all the tiny little progressive movements from where they were to where they are. So don't be discouraged in your evangelism. Don't be discouraged when the people around you, the people you love, the people you pray for, don't seem to be responding. But stay the course regardless of whether you see progress or not. Many miracles of God occur outside of our eyeline. We don't see it all. We don't have to see it all. Jesus was dealing privately with the man and he was communicating personally to him. What Jesus was doing with these odd movements that we see in this text is that he was basically using sign language to communicate with the man. He put his fingers in his ears. He stopped them and eventually he unstopped them. He touched his tongue, letting him know that the tongue was going to start working. He spit. Spit was a sign of life, of virility, to show that the tongue wasn't just going to start working, but there was going to be life in it. He was communicating in a way that the man might understand what was going to happen. And then he reminded the man of the point and the power of his actions. The final sign that he does before he opens his ears is he looks up. He shows the man exactly from where this healing is going to occur. That this isn't some man standing before him, but this is God standing before him. That when he is healed, he is not healed merely by a man, but he is healed by the God of the universe. God has unstopped his ears. God has brought his tongue to life. You're showing that the man, that the words the man would soon speak and the sounds that he would soon hear are made possible by the power of God above and God alone. That way, the man would never forget exactly to whom he owed his newfound senses. Every word he spoke, every sound he heard, would be a reminder of the magnificent grace and power of God in his life specifically. And then he sighed. He breathed on the man. It's a picture of the new life that he was about to breathe into him, of the new life he was about to give him. Christ does a similar thing when he gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples after his resurrection in John 20, 22. He sighs. He breathes out. Just as God breathed into Adam and gave him life, Christ is breathing out into the man and giving him new life. He's not just healing the man, but he's breathing new life into him. Christ is the one who does the work of saving in this text. Look at verses 34 through 37. And he looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Christ does the work of saving. He speaks to those who can't hear 
How ironic is it that that's how he gives hearing to the man? The man's deaf and Jesus talks to him. And these aren't magic words. It's not an incantation that he says, but they're ordinary words that are able to be translated. They're spoken by a powerful God man. The words don't have the power. Jesus does. This same method of speaking to those who are deaf and giving them hearing, that's how he saves everybody. Everyone who has come to faith in Christ once had their ears stopped up and he opened them. He let them hear his message. The gospel message tends to fall on deaf ears many, many times before it takes root in our lives. We who preach the cross, preach the cross to those who take our words as a stench of death. But we do so hoping and praying beyond hope that God will open the ears of those who are deaf. That he'll let them receive our words as the aroma of Christ. That when they hear them, they will be brought to life. So this should embolden us to speak. Yeah, it may seem as if they're deaf. It may seem as if they don't hear you. But we serve a God who speaks to the deaf. And by the words that he speaks to those who don't hear them, they can hear them. By those words, they're brought to life. By those words, they receive their hearing. Romans 10 verses 14 through 17, which should be on the screen behind me says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How will they hear unless we preach to them? How will we preach unless we are sent? How will they hear the words that may open their ears and let them hear? Unless we are faithful to preach the gospel to them. Do we have the patience right here, right now in our lives today to proclaim the good news over and over? Hoping, praying that someday, maybe, their ears will finally open to the good news of the truth. Very few of us in this room were saved after hearing the gospel once. You didn't hear it one time and then come to faith. Why do you expect them to come to faith after hearing it one time? I am the son of a pastor. I was saved at a fairly young age, probably five or six. I don't remember exactly. Uh, But if you think about it, For someone who is in church every Sunday morning for Sunday school, every Sunday morning for worship, every Sunday night because we had Sunday night services, every Wednesday night because we had Wednesday night services. That's four times a week in church that I am hearing the good news of the gospel for, let's be on the shorter side, five years, 52 weeks in a year, four times a week, 208 times a year. Over five years, that's over a thousand times I heard the good news before I came to faith, and I was five. That's pretty young, almost too young to really know what's going on. And I had to hear it a thousand times before it finally sunk in. And that's not even counting all the times I heard it at the dinner table, all the times I heard it before bed. 
if someone wouldn't have been patient with me to tell me the thousandth time, if they would have stopped at 999, I wouldn't be standing before you today the man that I am. Very few of us come to the gospel after hearing it once. So we've got to be faithful to proclaim it over and over and over again. Because we don't know when their ears are going to open. But we know that God has ordained that by the words that we speak to them, that's what opens their ears. So we have to be faithful to do that. He does the saving. We have to be faithful to proclaim his truth over and over again until he decides to save. Until he opens their ears. Until he gives them ears to hear. He lets the deaf hear. And this Christ, who does the saving, does all things well. Jesus healed this man. He made the deaf hear and the mute speak. He cast out demons earlier in the reading today. And he did all this in accordance with revealing who he was to the people in the region. He was showing himself by his actions to be the Christ. He was doing all things well. There are echoes in this text of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which should be on the screen. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. We've seen this passage in our text today in both of our stories. The ears of the deaf have been unstopped both literally and spiritually. The man can now hear not only normal words, but he's open to the words of life which Jesus is speaking to him. He's been opened as a man to new life through his ears being unstopped. His mute tongue is now able to speak plainly. And there's no way that when he was speaking, he didn't eventually sing for joy at the possibility to be able to speak. The mute sing for joy when the Christ comes. There's no way he wasn't singing with joy at the opportunity to speak again. There are a few types of videos on the internet that I will watch every time. If I know exactly what's coming, it doesn't matter what I'm doing, I will take time and I will watch this video. One of them are gender reveal fails. When people try to reveal the gender of their child, a lot of times what they do nowadays is they have some kind of big party, an elaborate gesture, something that's either pink or blue and lets you know whether it's a boy or a girl. And they construct elaborate ways to be able to reveal who this is, what kind of child this is going to be. And sometimes, particularly the more elaborate the reveal is going to be, things go terribly wrong. And this happens, and people on the internet see these videos, and they put them into a compilation to where you can sit for five minutes and just watch people have this great, joyous day that they've planned absolutely ruined over and over and over again. My particular favorite are baseball gender reveal fails. Sometimes this is like a, a ball that's filled with powder, and the wife will toss it to the husband, and he'll swing and hit it with a bat. It explodes into a powder of either pink or blue. That's what's supposed to happen. There's a ton of different ways it can go wrong, but my favorite way that it goes wrong is whenever the wife gives a soft pitch to the man, and it's not very good. And the man decides, nope, that's a ball. I'm not swinging. Because plate discipline doesn't go away just to reveal the gender of your child. If it's outside the strike zone, you don't swing at it. So he lets it go. 
And because he didn't swing, it shatters on the ground and everything is ruined. The entire day, the entire plan, everything that they had done is ruined because he decided pitch was a little bit too high. Everyone's upset. She's mad. He's mad. The people feel like they watch something anticlimactic because instead of seeing a cool image of uh, an explosive powder on the bat, they see it on the ground. His shoes are covered. She says, why didn't you swing? He says, why didn't you give me something to hit? It's the best every time. Another video that I watch every time I see it is whenever someone's given colorblind glasses for the first time. People who are colorblind go their whole lives seeing shades of gray or getting colors confused. But they've made these glasses nowadays where you can give them to someone and you put them on and they're able to see the colors they could never see before. And these videos are just the most heart-wrenching things you've ever seen. It's a sweet old man who's lived his whole life in grays. And they give him these glasses and he has no idea what they are. They're funky looking He thinks they're just fancy sunglasses. They say, put them on, and he does. And it's like his world is completely different. He's living in color for the first time. He breaks down into tears. Everybody's in tears because he says, I didn't know that's what that was. The whole time, he was living in a world of grays. But now his eyes have been opened. He's able to see what was always there. What those around him already knew. But for him, everything is different. His eyes have been opened. For the man in this story, his ears had been opened. He's able to hear for the first time. Not just regular words, but the words of the God of the universe speaking to him. Be opened, privately, one-on-one communicating with him in such a way that he might understand it both before and after his ears are unstopped. His whole world is different. He's living in a new creation with a new life because Christ has opened his ears. He's always had ears, but now they can hear. Just like the man who always had eyes but couldn't see the colors. That's what happens in this text today. The woman similarly was out in the wilderness. She was out in the desert. She was far from the land of God's blessing. Not a member of the people of Israel. Not a member of the people of the promise. But a dog. Who was just hoping for a few scraps at the master's table. But Christ has gone to that wilderness. He caused waters to break forth in the desert. He gave life where there was no life. This passage Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, took on messianic meaning for the Jews. So if they saw Jesus perform miracles like this over and over, they would have clued in, this is the Messiah. This is what he was called to do. This is what he came to do. He is here to open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, open the tongue of the mute, and to give life in the desert. But if you remember today, He's not surrounded by Jews in this story. He's entire in Sidon. He's surrounded by pagans. So they don't immediately ascribe the identity of Christ to him. But what they do ascribe to him, what they know about him, is that he is the one who does all things well. That's evident to them. 
He's the one with power which astonishes them beyond measure. He does all things well. He opens the eyes of the blind, opens the ears of the deaf, opens the tongue of the mute, and saves even one who would be considered a dog. Because he has more than enough to go around. He still is the one who does all things well. He still saves both the unclean and unworthy and the incapable. He only saves saves the unclean and unworthy. He only saves the incapable. Because we all, as we've discovered over the last few weeks, are incredibly sinful. We've got nothing to bring to the table. We don't bring food to the table. We take it from the table. All we bring to him is our sin. And what we receive is the infinite bread of life. We all are deaf to the gospel over and over and over again until he opens our ears. Until he unstops them. Until he speaks the words of life to us. He still does this. He still saves the unclean and the incapable. So we should take that message of salvation to them. We should preach his gospel to them. We should give them the one who does all things well. Because that's what we've received. That's what he's done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to, to read your word together as a people. To worship you together as a people. To be saved into a people. Thank you for going beyond the bounds of geography to get to us. Crossing the lines of sex to get to us. Thank you for saving people who are outside of the ethnicity of the people that you had originally saved to get to us. Thank you for saving us who are so unworthy, so unclean in your presence. Thank you for opening our ears giving us mouths with which to speak the good news to others that their ears may be opened. Thank you for these good gifts, for giving us your son who does all things well. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.